Thank you so much for joining us for this episode in our new Let's Talk podcast series. I'm Maria, the Prevention and Youth Engagement Coordinator at the National Runaway Safe Line. The National Runaway Safe Line, or NRS, is the federally supported national communication system for runaway and homeless youth in the United States, providing crisis support and resources to over 125,000 youth, families, and communities annually. This November, as we recognize National Runaway Prevention Month, I have the honor of hosting this podcast series where our hope is to elevate the voices of young people as they share their stories and highlight the complexities and intersections that are witnessed by the 4.2 million young people experiencing homelessness across the United States each year. In this episode, I'm so excited to introduce to you all Zachary Mallory. Over the past few months, I've had the privilege to work with Zachary and learn from them as they have shared their story and their advocacy to national audiences. Zachary is a Kansas City native whose passion is in mental health and suicide prevention in their community. They provide services through trauma-informed care lens and prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout their work. Zachary is also a member of the NRS Youth Advisory Board. With all that being said, Zachary, thank you again for joining us today. And could you start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and how you got started in the youth advocacy space? Yeah, absolutely. So I come from like a really good, stable environment, like living with my parents. Uh, my mom and my dad got divorced a couple of years ago. He moved out. And then I figured that I wanted to kind of like journey on my own. So I turned 18 and I graduated. I moved to New York before they got divorced moved to New York and that's when like my housing instability experience first started. Um, I met a guy through Facebook, which oh, God, I really shouldn't have done that. But um, thinking about that, you know, thinking back to it, I was like, oh my God. Um, but anyway, so I moved to New York with him and we ended up getting kicked out and we ended up going into different shelters. Um, once they found out that we were gay men, they kind of treated us a little bit different. Um, and I've heard a lot of stories from people that identify on the LGBTQ plus spectrum that they have a lot of different experiences. And it's a lot of it is really trauma too, because if you go into like a religious based culture and tell them that you are trans or you are queer or you are, you know, anything outside of your stereotypical, you know, fit into a box. Um, a lot of the times they turn you away. Um, I was fortunate that they did not turn me away, but they did uh, not give me access to a lot of services. Um, and this was in upstate New York. It was about an hour outside of Syracuse. Um, and then I came back home because I was like, you know what, I don't want to stay in the shelter. So I asked my grandfather if he could buy me a ticket back home, and he did. Um, and I came back home for a while, and then I moved to Minnesota. Everything was going so fantastically in Minnesota. And then the person that I was living with decided that he was going to kick me out. So I ended up couch surfing, and I ended up, you know, for a couple months just, you know, walking the streets and then going to different shelters and then I finally moved in with one of my friends that lives up in Minnesota 
and then my mom got sick, so I ended up coming back home. But for a couple months, I was very unstable. Uh, my mental health was deteriorating. Um, I felt suicidal. So I came back home, and then I started advocating for policy on the state level, on the national level, um, you know, talking with elected officials, talking with Congress, sharing my story of surviving domestic gun violence and um, how it led me to housing instability. And it just really changed me as a person. For anyone joining us today who might not know the link between domestic violence or intimate partner violence and experiencing homelessness, is that something you feel comfortable talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So domestic violence, or somebody who goes through domestic violence, um, a lot of the times they end up running away from home or they end up going into a shelter or going into some type of system. Um, and I have seen too many times that those systems criminalize a survivor because, oh, we don't believe you or we don't think about this. We look at the number of people who are homeless and we look up statistics, you will see a large number of domestic violence situations and gun violence situations. It goes hand in hand. Anything can wind you up homeless. Anything that you experience, anything that you go through, you know, in actuality, we're all one paycheck away from being on the street. You know, like, well, let's be real. Let's be honest. But people who have gone through domestic violence end up sometimes end up leaving their home and have nowhere else to go. They don't want to go into a shelter because they don't think that they will be heard. They don't think they will be validated. Um, so they end up on the streets. Sometimes they become sex workers. Um, which I support sex workers, and I think it needs to be decriminalized. Um, but, yeah, it, it goes hand in hand. Do you feel comfortable sharing your experience with domestic violence, and if that led to housing instability in your life? Yeah. I, I met him in person after talking for quite a while, and we... I thought things were going like really well, like we were jiving, like we were talking and like, you know, everything was going really well. And then my friend left, because we were over at her house, my friend left and then he pulled out a firearm on me and he strikes me across the face. He forced me to do sexual things that I did not want to do. And that day I became a domestic gun violence survivor and a sexual assault survivor. Um, that was the second time that I was sexually assaulted, but I didn't see myself as a survivor until I started speaking about it. Um, I always thought I was a victim, but I'm not a victim. I am a survivor. Um, you don't hear that too often. You know, and that led me to volunteering in action. That led me to sharing my story of being domestic violence on different panels and um, talking to different legislators and influencing policy, it all ties in together. But it was hard for me to come and tell my mom, like, hey, this just happened to me. I felt like I needed to run away from home. And I almost did. I was really close. Um, and at that time, I felt so violated and I felt disgusting. Like, you know, I came home and I had a scar across, or, you know, across my face from the butt end of the gun. Mm -hmm. And I just, 
I, I I just told my mom that I fell, and it's like I went on with that. I did not report to police because I felt like police was going to escalate the situation, so I did not report it to police. My first sexual assault, I did try to report to the police like prior to this, and then the police department did not take me seriously at all. They refused to take my report, which led to suicidal ideation, which led to wanting to run away again, which led to feeling suicidal, and then it led to a suicide attempt. Um, I've attempted suicide four times. It's been spread out in three years since I attempted the last time. So that is progress. That shows me that I'm actually moving forward in things and not letting my past dictate my future. Earlier, you mentioned that when you were first experiencing homelessness, you experienced discrimination at a shelter you were seeking services from. As you continued experiencing homelessness and housing instability, did you access other services? And if so, do you feel like they meaningfully supported you? A lot of the services I felt like, you know, if I was discriminated here, I don't want to be discriminated against. So why take a chance at, you know, getting discriminated against again, whenever I can just be with people that I know support me and understand me, like, you know, why would I put myself back in that predicament? Um, I, and I just kept thinking, like, okay, I'm going to get discriminated against. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to reach out to anybody. Um, so I was afraid to reach out to anybody else because I, did, I just didn't want to feel that again. It's a, it's a pain that you never want to feel. Like, you're not included. You're not accepted. Um, I have felt that numerous times throughout my life. I was the target of bullying in high school for being too feminine or being too this or being too that or you're too fat or like just like ah so many things just contributed to suicidal ideation. You know, like what what if I took my own life and how would people feel? Do you feel like you had someone you could trust while you were going through all of these challenges? The only real person that I ever talked to about anything that I was experiencing was my mom. That was my support system. That was my everything. Um, I, I didn't feel like I had a sense of community. Um, you know, I have like over 4,900 friends on Facebook, but I was afraid to like, you know, a lot of them are going through their own traumas and a lot of them are going through their own things. I felt like I was going to be a burden. So I just really kept it to myself, which led to suicidal ideation, which led to, eventually led to a suicide attempt, and then it turned into getting back into drugs again, and then just, it, it, I just started spiraling and going down a rabbit hole again. You know, I've been sober for six years, I almost broke that. Um, <clears throat> you know, to this day, I still feel like sometimes like I'm gonna go off the edge, but Ultimately, I'm, a, I, I'm able to, I'm more aware of like how I'm feeling. Um, I have a, I have a kick-ass uh, therapist that I talk to now. Um, she's life-saving and yeah, and just really being involved with different organizations for different causes and that's all a part of my self-care plan. Is there anything that you wish could be changed or improved to more effectively and efficiently meet young people's needs? One wish that I wish people would just listen. 
like, just listen. Believe survivors. Believe people whenever they come and tell you what they are experiencing. Um, this goes down to police departments. This goes to psychologists. This goes to social workers. This goes to homeless shelters. This goes to anybody and everybody. You know, all too often, they're like, oh, you're just another homeless person. Like, we're not going to treat you any special way. You need to respect and understand people from where they're coming from. And it just literally starts with believing and it starts with listening. I think another thing that would really change things, if police officers and like anybody who works with vulnerable populations, um, if they were trained specifically in trauma-informed care and they focus on a DEI lens, but specifically police officers need to be trained in some type of mental health. I believe that every single officer needs to go through the CIT training and they need to be CIT certified. Because a lot of times what happens is police officers respond to a domestic violence situation or a suicidal, a suicidal person or somebody who is homeless or somebody who just went through gun violence or you know, anything like that. In my personal experience, uh, police have always escalated the situation and have made me feel even worse. Zachary, talking to you today has been so powerful. And I just have one last question. That's what message do you feel is important for the public to know or understand about young people who have run away from home or experience homelessness? One message that I would say that matters the most is meet them where they're coming from. Meet them at their level and bring them up. Um, uplift them, love them, listen to them, and believe them. Um, that you would be surprised about how that can make somebody feel. They feel validated, they feel heard, they feel loved. They may not have that outside of talking to you. Thank you again, Zachary. And thank you to everyone who's partnered with us this National Runaway Prevention Month. Thank you to everyone who's committed to becoming more aware of the youth homelessness crisis. Thank you to all the young people who share their expertise and speak truth to power. And of course, thank you to everyone who has joined us today for our sixth episode in the Let's Talk podcast series, concluding our first season of this project. Throughout the month of November, we published a new episode each Tuesday that centered young people leading important conversations about the issues at the intersections of youth homelessness while sharing their stories. As National Runaway Prevention Month draws to a close, we're so thankful for your support in our mission of ending youth homelessness. I'm Maria, and let's talk soon.